We go on the assumption that among friends at least we'll be told what we need to know when the time comes for us to know it. I didn't ask who was in the conference, therefore, but I did drink the coffee. Then, left alone, I shed my uniform blouse, stretched out on the bunk, closed my eyes, and tried not to think of a shape under a blanket and a single silver slipper. After a while I went to sleep. When I awoke, my watch read well past eight, but the cabin had no direct connection with the outside world, so I had to take daylight on faith. I noticed a certain vibration and deduced that we were underway. Presently Braithwaite appeared and guided me down the passage to the plumbing, after which he took me to the wardroom for breakfast. I knew it was the wardroom because it said so on the door. We had a table to ourselves, but there were other officers present who looked me over casually as I sat down. I hoped I didn't look as phony as I felt in my borrowed uniform. "'We don't want to make a mystery of you, sir,' Braithwaite said. "'As far as the ship's company is concerned, you're just a reserve officer on temporary active duty observing carrier training operations for the day. There'll be less talk that way than if we tried to hide you from sight.' He glanced at his watch. "'We should have some advanced jet trainers coming in shortly.' As soon as we finish chow, we'll go topside and watch them practice landings to make it look good. I hope you don't mind a little noise. He grinned. I didn't get the significance of the grin just then, but it became clear to me a little later as I stood on a narrow observation walk on the carrier superstructure, or island, looking down at the flight deck which was the length of three football fields, with catapults forward and a resting gear aft, all explained to me in detail by my conscientious young escort. We were well out in the Gulf of Mexico by this time, out of sight of land on a clear, bright, cool fall day, and the ship was steaming into the wind fast enough that I had to pull my uniform cap down hard to keep it from being blown away. Braithwaite laughed. "'We've got to have thirty-two knots of wind along the flight deck to take the jets aboard,' he said. "'This time of year there's usually a breeze to help out,' but in summer and a flat calm, the engineering officer has to sweat blood to make it. Here they come now, sir. They were already circling the ship like a swarm of hornets. Now the first one came in fast, snagged an arresting wire with its tail hook and slammed to a stop. It was hardly clear and taxiing forward, past the island where we stood, when the second one hit the wires, and I began to understand Braithwaite's remark about noise. The damn planes roared, shrieked, sobbed, and whistled. The port catapult would fling one thundering jet off the bow to go around again, while another blasted away on the starboard catapult, awaiting its turn. Meanwhile, number three was taxiing up amidships, howling up a storm, and number four was coming in over the stern, screaming like a banshee. There was something hypnotic about the tremendous din. It brought back memories of other places I'd stood some years ago watching other planes take off. Planes that upon occasion I'd help prepare the way for in secret and unpleasant ways. I don't suppose the kids in those planes ever knew that anybody had been before them, any more than these earnest kids with their faces half hidden by their helmets and mics realized that if the time ever came for them to take their deadly machines up armed, they would be contributing only a little official noise and glamour to the silent, unofficial war that's always being fought by quiet people without flashy helmets and often without microphones, too, or any other means of communicating with home base. What we undercover...